Hello everyone, welcome to the Talking Pharmacy podcast, where we look back at events in pharmacy over the past week or so. My name is Richard Thomas, I'm the editor of Pharmacy Magazine. Join me on the pod this week are Rob Darricott, editor of P3 Pharmacy, and Arthur Walsh, editor of our daily news service, Pharmacy Network News. Neil Trainis is away, still working on his novel. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday in our central London office, so you may hear a little bit of street noise outside in Regent Street. Um, and no pod last week, of course, we took a short break, so we have lots of news to catch up on. Later, I talk to AIM Chief Executive Leila Handbeck in our interview slot. But first, as usual, we have Good Week, Bad Week. So let's start with Bad Week to get it out of the way. Uh, Rob, who's in the Daracot doghouse this week? And don't say our IT department. Morning, Richard. Uh, yeah, I'm actually, as you know, in Hampshire. So hopefully we don't have any extraneous noises off. But Bad Week for me. So we're kind of back to Brexit again, aren't we? And um, Arthur's written quite a nice story uh, this week about... A drug, yet another plea from UK drug manufacturers to members of parliament about um, the whole kind of post-transition period Brexit situation and the potential impact on the UK and EU medicines if a comprehensive trade deal isn't agreed. Um, so whose bad week is this particularly? I think potentially it's a bad week for patients, although we've been talking about this kind of thing for four years, really, and nobody's listening. Um, I don't know about you, but the more I kind of hear about it now, the more I'm getting slightly concerned that no matter what contingency measures are put in place, um, we could have a potential problem whenever the transition period ends and we we end up with a situation where some of the, um, the, the movements of trucks and things gets slightly more complicated, you know, whether it's the independent Republic of Kent and its new licensing rules or whether it's just the whole kind of Dover... Um, Calais situation um, you know I mean I know it's great that Chris Grayling is advising a port somewhere about how to do some of these things but uh, I just think it's it's a it's an accident waiting to happen yeah the alarm bells are definitely ringing aren't they and and, and if failing Grayling's got anything to do with it then then we we, we really are in trouble um, yeah that is a bad week don't know how that's going to impact, do we? And we're, we're none the wiser, even after four years, like you say, Rob. So uh, uncertain and worrying. Arthur, uh, who's had a bad week for you? Yeah, well, just on Rob's thing, I think sort of at the very essence of Brexit is this just grinding sense of deja vu. You know, we had however many times Theresa May, May's deal went to Parliament and it was just, you know, here, here we are again. Well, here we are again, sort of four years later, still no clue what's going to happen to medicine supply chain. Um, my bad week is probably unsurprisingly for our readers. Uh, pharmacy to you, bit of a bet noir for community pharmacists as they get accused of all sorts of uh, chicanery. Well, this time they have been accused again of using mi- misleading claims of their advertising. They've got these online ads on Facebook and probably elsewhere where they uh, say that they're paid uh, more than £9 million less than the average pharmacy. Um, the NPA has um, uh, asked the GPHC to investigate this because they feel it misrepresents the way NHS funds are allocated. I mean, there's, because it's just a global sum and it's going to get divvied up uh, to, to all pharmacies rather than, you know, pharmacy to you 
uh, actually saving the NHS money. Um, Pharmacy 2, unsurprisingly, were unavailable for comments, um, but lots, lots of our readers are very, uh, very vocal about it. Yeah, and Pharmacy 2, of course, have got track record. They do, they? yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they, um, and it was the MPA as well who asked the ASA to, to look into previous claims about the, the benefits they offer the NHS, and they were told to you know, stop, use, stop using the claim. Well, they, here we are again, again, deja vu, pharmacy to using dodgy claims about the NHS. Deja vu, yes. And when we, we interviewed Mark Livingstone a couple of years ago now, or just shortly after it, um, the ASA came out with that ruling, um, stood by it very unapologetically, mm. didn't he? So The trouble with these adverts, I think, is that they're, they're out there, aren't they? And so slap wrist after the event is, is, is not really helpful if that's where it ends up of course we don't know but um you know people are looking at it and they're they're building their um their decision making about where to get their medicines on the basis of of information which ultimately might be taken down but it's there you know millions of people are looking at it indeed and, and there's an element of opportunism about this as well isn't it we, we saw it with echo didn't we using the, the covid crisis to to kind of promote and market the uh, the online business model at the expense of the, the bricks and mortar model really um doesn't represent pharmacy well as a as a whole i don't think but we shall see what the the gphc does i mean gphc has been accused in the past of of rather soft soaping pharmacy to you with with its various misdemeanors over the years so it'll be interesting to see whether the regulator um takes a firmer approach this time um and I'm going to mention the, the regulator regulator again. A bad week for me, for the GPHC, over the provisionally registered pharmacists fiasco. So it's a difficult one. The first thing to say about this, uh, purely on a human level, is, is what a difficult, even desperate situation that these young pharmacists find themselves in th through no fault of their own. And I, I really, really feel for them. And the uncertainty and the worry allied to, to not great communication from the GPHC, apparently. I mean, this is having a devastating impact on them, going by the outpouring of anger on, on social media. I and mean, it's completely understandable. The other thing to be, to be clear about here, when you take all the emotion out of this, is that the priority through all of this is maintaining public confidence in the profession. Now, whether the, the registration exam is the right way of doing this or whether it's even fit for purpose, well, that's a debate for another day. And it's not fit for purpose, by the way. But that's a debate for another day, like I say. And it, it, it's currently one of the main tools the regulator has to assess a minimum level of competence. It's imperfect, but it's what we've got. But, um, and it's a huge but, there are some really serious questions for the GPAC here that they've come nowhere near to answering yet, because this was a very avoidable problem. And it does seem, to me anyway, counterintuitive somehow, even unfair, that in these exceptional circumstances due to COVID, these provisionally registered pharmacists who have been practicing now for several months and would have been practicing for around nine months by the time they sit the assessment, which was announced yesterday on the Wednesday, um, it's going to take place in the first quarter of 2021. So they've been asked to pass a registration exam retrospectively, nine months retrospectively. And so surely there must be another way that public confidence could be maintained as far as this cohort is concerned. 
perhaps through a system of more extensive revalidation or on-the-job assessment or, or tutor review, patient review, whatever it might be. If they're a risk to the public, why are they practising now? But the trouble is, of course, there are no easier ideal solutions now. It's too complex a problem, and it's a problem, as I say, the regulators should have foreseen. Why has it taken the GPAC so long to procure a registration assessment online provider? All the bids were in on July the 22nd. And what about those waiting to reset the exam? They feel very marginalised and are a bit, little bit lost at the moment. There are those not in employment, and we've heard that some people are claiming universal credit, for goodness sake. There's overseas graduates that has an impact on a lot of people, and lives are, are really being affected here. And actually, I don't understand why the decision was taken to move to online assessment anyway. It always seemed like a bad, even panic decision to me. Why didn't the regulator stick to the conventional examination format? I mean, yes, it would have been difficult to arrange logistically, but no more difficult than the present situation, surely. Um, they could have held the assessments regionally in late summer. Maybe they could have used the various schools of pharmacy, socially distanced, of course. I mean, I'd have offered to go down to Portsmouth to help invigilate myself if, if that's what was needed. So it, it's, it's really difficult, and ramifications of this are going to be felt for a long time, um, unfortunately, not just for, for those provisionally registered pharmacists caught up in this mess, but for the GPHC's standing in the profession at large. So with its reputation, uh, if not in tatters, but having taken a, a big blow, and for a very avoidable problem, uh, I'm sorry, but it's a, a very bad week for the GPHC. Rob, what, did, what have you made of all of this? Well, well, first of all, Richard, that was, that was quite some summary. I think you probably need to take a couple of features out of the next issue for a four-page <laughs> or five-page leader. Uh, but, yes, I've got a couple of things to say about this. Um, first of all, just leaving on one side uh, this whole nature of having a summative assessment after a period of formative experience and... Boy, you know, these prospective pharmacists um, have had one heck of a formative experience, uh, those who've been working under these rules. But I mean, the biggest issue for me is how it makes, how it, it affects the people themselves. Back in 1982, on the 31st of August, myself and two other pre-registration as we were just about to finish pre-registration pharmacists were granted special dispensation to run a hospital pharmacy for one day before our formal registration and boy did we feel odd and concerned about taking charge of a pharmacy for a day before we were formally registered so how um you know how uh our new colleagues are feeling about this. I don't know. Um, you know, for months and months and months on end, and that—that's the big concern. I think everything that you've said is is absolutely on point, and uh, you know, well done for summarising it. You've covered this in Pharmacy Network News. Um, it, it's and followed it on social media, of course. I think the, the outpouring of anger on on Twitter really has been the the barometer on this, and it's been um, it's been terrible, really. It's a very upsetting stories and, and comments being being made on social media by by these young pharmacists. Yeah, no, you've summed it up very well. Um, I mean, like as you say, these are people who should be at the start of their careers who are just left in limbo. Um, and I mean, I, I mean, obviously, 
the, the GPHC can say that it's a very complicated process to choose an online provider. But is it, you know, is it six months complicated? It just seems a little bit unnecessary. And as I said, they had the bids in by kind of mid-July. It seems a little bit sort of protracted to have only sort of ch chosen which, which supplier they're going with now. Um, yeah, it's all, all a bit of a, of a shambles, really, and very unnecessary. And as you say, I mean, I, I mean, I don't, obviously, I'm not involved in, I, I'm not putting on exams myself, but Northern Ireland managed it. They, I think they normally use one exam centre because they've only got sort of 150 pre-regs, but they use three for the same amount. I'm sure it would have been a, a challenge, but I'm sure something like that could have been done. But I think the GPHC is very keen to move to online anyway. They're going to keep with the online exams after COVID, or, or, or that's what they say. Um, but yeah, it's all very unfortunate for the people concerned. You know, like I said, the only small positive, it, it, it is a positive in a way, I suppose, is, is now there is a date. Um, well, there's not Ish. even a date, a date issue, the diary, yeah, a, a period of the first quarter of next year where, where at least they know um, roughly when, when the assessment's going to take place. Perhaps that removes a little bit of uncertainty, but, you know, small crumbs, really. So, yeah, I think we all agree there. Very bad week for the GPHC. So last week I talked to Leila Hanbeck, Chief Executive of AIM, the Association of Independent Multiple Pharmacies. Leila left the NPA to join AIM as Chief Executive in July last year, replacing the long-serving Colin Baldwin. And this is what she had to say. So Leila, thanks very much for, for joining us on the podcast. How are you and how's your, your young family? Oh, thanks, Richard, for inviting me to your podcast. Yeah, everything is fine. It's been chaotic, um, you know, as a new mom over the COVID period. Um, it's just been anything but straightforward. Um, but I guess that's life and uh, we're all in it. And, um, and yeah, it, it's, it's just um, interesting, um, you know, being a mom during this, this sort of COVID period, but getting used to it, I guess. Good, because you've got quite a lot on your plate, fair play. Uh, but congratulations, well, really good news for you this year with, with, with the family, so that's lovely. So let's start with the, the funding situation there. What is the view of AIM members at the moment with the, the latest state of play with, with funding negotiations? From AIM's perspective, obviously, we want the best thing for our members and, and for the sector. And um, we know that community pharmacies at the moment are going through a very, very tough period. Um, and, uh, you know, they've, they've, shown how, they've shown their worth over the COVID period and their resilience and their agility. And uh, for us to be able to move forward and, and be that sort of front door to the NHS that Matt Hancock has actually mentioned, we do need to be um, you know, receiving the, 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 the funding and the support from um, officials and decision makers in order for us to continue that. Um, I think um, this period, if anything, has demonstrated how important pharmacy is in the lives of, of, of the public and, um, you know, how um, much the teams have gone over and beyond to, to demonstrate that. But it's also demonstrated that they are struggling. They're really, really struggling. Um, we know that the PSNC have asked for um, the 370 million to be written off and the COVID costs and so on. And we haven't heard anything back yet in terms of like where we are with all of this. And every 
day that goes by, every week that goes by, community pharmacists struggle and struggle and struggle. And at the end of the day, it's the public that end up suffering because of, um, you know, we know that we could be a great asset to the NHS, but if we are not sufficiently funded, if you're not even getting the COVID costs covered, you know, how, how can we survive? How can we continue being that front door to the NHS? Yeah, the, the EUI report um, really hammered that home and the, the financial situation of, of, of many pharmacies is, is dire at the moment. And is that what your, your members are telling you on the ground, that the, the financial situation for, for AIM companies is, is getting progressively worse and it's more and more of a struggle? Everybody's struggling, um, Richard. Everybody's struggling. And um, it's, it's because we are, we're trying to do everything we can to be there for our patients, to be there within the communities. But unfortunately, well, obviously, like every other business, um, pharmacists have costs too. And um, the more we do, the more costs we, you know, accumulate. And so it, it's only fair to ask, for the relevant funding to be given to community pharmacists to continue doing what we're doing and truly be there as this front door to the NHS that, that you know, the, the government has, has alluded to. Um, it's one thing saying that, um, that pharmacy, you know, plays a great role, but actually another thing to supporting pharmacy to achieving what, what we can achieve. Um, so it's, you know, every, everybody's struggling, everybody's struggling and uh, it's, it's, not, it's not easy out there. Um, and we're all waiting and, and, and hearing, okay, waiting to hear what the outcome of these negotiations are going to be. So it's turning words into actions, really, that AIM members want to see. Absolutely. Words into actions and be recognised for all the, all the great work that pharmacy teams have been doing. I mean, look at the flu vaccination service, for example, since it started, you know, pharmacy teams have hit the ground running. I mean, they, you know, we're hearing... Uh, from our members, how popular the service is and, and patients coming to pharmacy asking to be, uh, you, know, uh, you know, vaccinated and, and so on. So what I'm trying to say is that community pharmacy, our members deliver. They deliver. When, when we are, when something is put in front of us, we go behind it and, and we get it done. And we do it with passion. But that needs to be recognised. Um, that needs to be recognised. And it's not... A, a difficult thing we're asking. We're just asking to be remunerated for the work that we put in to delivering services for the NHS so that our members are not left out of pocket um, and that we can continue, you know, doing all those great things for the NHS, for example, getting involved with the COVID vaccine and, 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 and so on and, and training our team, continue putting effort to training our teams, to developing our teams. You know, all of this require sufficient funding and support for us to be able to continue doing that. Let's talk about flu vaccination then. Very successful service in pharmacies, as you've described, 1.7 million uh, vaccinations last year. Probably on course for 1.9, maybe even 2 million vaccines this year. Is £10.8 enough of a fee? I think one thing that we need to consider is that this came out pretty late so this you know uh, we heard about uh, the remuneration when the season had already started and uh, you know as I said it's one of those things that pharmacists do have costs 
um, that have costs to you know manage the the, the you know the, the the operational stuff within the pharmacy and so whatever service that we provide the pharmacist time that goes into this the preparations that go into this and so it's it's only fair for the sector to be remunerated properly for the services that we provide and uh, we've said that with um, other services for, for example CPCS and, and so on and, and you know the, the effort that goes into it will need to be proper recognized um, and it has to be you know we, we want our members to get the sort of um, information on funding and um, you know on, on the, the, the specifications and all that in time so they can start preparing and so that can start, you know, putting relevant operations in place to manage it. And it's the same everywhere in, in pharmacies. We are, you know, we've got operations to run and it needs to be, we, we need the time and, and we need the relevant support and funding to manage it. Um, like any other setting. I mean, you know, GPs are the same, you know, they are also businesses that have operational costs and other costs. And uh, why should pharmacies be different? Uh, leaving aside funding for the moment, are you happy and are AIM members happy with the general direction and pace of travel with the contractual framework? They were, uh, the next tranche of, of clinical services were announced last week and, and we've got the, the rollout of the GP referral uh, to the CPCS coming up in the autumn. Is that where pharmacy needs to be or should progress be a little bit quicker? We know that the direction of travel based on the NHS um, um, agenda is uh, for pharmacy to become more clinical. We know that and we've heard that for, for years. And so the direction of travel in terms of like, you know, introducing services into community pharmacy has been in line with, you know, the, 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 you know ensuring pharmacy becomes that sort of clinical setting. Um, and um, from our members' perspective, if you, you know, we've, we've been looking at data and it's very clear that when services come out in pharmacy, our members embrace it. They embrace, um, you know, they're, they're embracing flu vaccination service, CPCS, all the other services, NMS, MURs. And so we get it done. We, we, we look at it, we, we, we make sure that, you know, our teams are briefed and, and um, we get behind it and deliver it. Now, the challenges are that we know that community pharmacy is going to get more clinical. We know that, you know, our members are, are behind it, but we need the right support. And again, coming back to the remuneration in order for, for pharmacy teams to be able to, um, you know, provide this and, and get behind it and, and, and so on. They should not be left out of pocket delivering clinical services. Um, and I know I'm coming back to this um, funding issue and remuneration issue. Um, and that is because we truly want to do something. We truly want to embrace the services. We truly want to, um, you know, go out there and become clinical. Nobody, I mean, I haven't heard from any one of my members um, saying that, oh, well, no, I don't want to deliver any services. Oh, no, I don't want to, you know, do any clinical services. No, they want to deliver that, but they shouldn't be left out of pocket. And that's why when we talk about funding and when we talk about remuneration is that basic thing that the pharmacy needs to survive. And, you know, if they don't have that, how can they go on and do more greater things when that basic thing is missing? So that was Leila Hanbeck there, 
The full interview will be released soon as part of our In Conversation with podcast series, where you can hear Layla's views on pharmacy's response to the COVID crisis, what AIM members want from the right review, what her personal vision is for the organisation, and, funding issues apart, has there been a change of tone from NHSE as far as community pharmacy is concerned? So let's do good week. Um, I'll go first here. Um, it's been a good week for whistleblowers. So this was a story uh, that Arthur did, uh, digging into the depths of the, uh, the GPHC annual report. And there's nothing Arthur likes more than rooting around the GPHC annual report, believe me. Um, anyway, this revealed that the number of pharmacists and pharmacy technicians whistleblowing to the GPHC about their working conditions continues to grow. Uh, 22 disclosures were made between April 2019 and March 2020, and this was up uh, from 16 in 2018-19 and 6 in 2017-18. So, you know, small numbers, but it's an interesting trend, and nevertheless, a sign of the times, I guess, and as we all know, Whistleblowing is encouraged in the NHS these days, including in pharmacies, for those people who might feel unable or find it hard to raise concerns without being uh, identified. And an interesting uh, side point, really, out of this, out of the the eight health regulators, it's the General Dental Council that receives the highest number of disclosures uh, from whistleblowers, followed by the Nursing and Midwifery Council, and the General Osteopathic Council had the least... So there we are. Good week for pharmacy whistleblowers. Arthur, who's had a good week for you? A very good week for a chap called Israel Marfo, who has graduated uh, with an M farm from Wolverhampton School of Pharmacy. He was originally a a London bus driver. For for many years, he worked as a bus driver in London. And he's shown such dedication to get to where he is now. He spent 10 years studying full-time and working part-time in a warehouse or as a security guard and sort of volunteered in pharmacies along the way. And he's now doing his pre-reg in well pharmacies in the sort of Midlands area. Uh, we did a story on this last week, and just the reaction to it was so um, positive. I, th- I think people ju- were just really, really touched uh, by, by Israel's story and by sort of the dedication he's shown and the perseverance. Um, so I think, yeah, wish, wish him all the best. Re- really, really uh, good week, uh, amid, a really good, good story amidst a lot of uh, not-so-good stories. So, um, yeah, good week for Israel. Yeah, great, great choice, Arthur. Like, like you said, that was one of our, um, um, the stories. It really took off on Twitter, didn't it? it was, um, we had more engagements with that story over, over a lot that we've done this year. Really good good story, feel good story. And, and like you say, you know, good luck, Israel. Um, I'm sure you're going to be a fantastic pharmacist and, and, you know, good luck in your your career going forward. Lovely story there. Uh, Rob, who's had a good week for you? Yeah, that's a great story, isn't it? Uh, right, my my good week story is a, is a kind of a slow burn one. So I'm going to um, in, indulge, crave your indulgence for a minute. So I think it's been a good week for P3 Pharmacy's Anonymous Correspondent Outsider. Now, so bear with me. You know, we talk a lot about things that annoy us uh, and those kind of TV screaming moments that we we pick up on occasionally. Neil's not here this week, so we we can't hear him having a go at somebody. But um, he or she who writes our back page column this week has has written a line 
that made both me and uh, uh, my associate editor, Leslie Neal, laugh out loud when we read it. And in amongst all of the, the sort of doom and gloom and the challenges of everything else, to have something that literally makes you laugh when you read it is, is a joy to behold. So I hope when people see it in print or online, they can, I think it stands out what the line is, to be honest, and we had to leave it in. So a good week for Outsider, wherever they are. Are you going to tell us what the line is, Rob, no. or are you just going to have to wait and see? You'll have to wait and see. Because, of course, it may, it may just be me and Leslie. We may, you know, other people might not find it funny at all. Oh, we, no, we'll definitely look out for that. Uh, that sounds intriguing. Um, Arthur, have you any other business that you've seen? Um, I've seen a story this morning about a prison in Ireland is being investigated over uh, spending, I think, €10,000 on high-end uh, food goods for cookery classes, sort of top-notch steak, uh, chocolate, and so on. Um, and this is sort of going through the courts now, I think. So I, I thought that was was interesting. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, what have I got? What have I got? Oh, um, I just saw a survey the other day uh, that uh, it was going through job occupations. Um, it's actually a bit of a serious point, I suppose. Uh, job, job occupation with the highest risk of, uh, of COVID infection. And uh, it was dentists, apparently, are in the occupation with the highest risk of COVID infection, which is understandable. And, and they were followed by a range of jobs in health, uh, critical care nurses, general practitioners, um, emergency medical technicians and paramedics right up there. Pharmacists actually came in 13th out of 48. So that's quite high. Uh, so let's hope the PP situation really has been sorted out, as the government has promised. <clears throat> um, can anyone guess the jobs with the, the least risk of infection? And don't say pharmacy editors. Arthur? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, Shropodis, I don't know. <laughs> no, not Shropodis either. Uh, least risk of infection, zoologists and wild biologists. I've got one. Oh, go on then. So, I've got one that literally, I, I don't know whether you've had time to look at the, um, the Trump-Biden debate, um, which, you know, seemed to belong to me more like 11pm on a Saturday night in a backstreet pub than on primetime TV. But my any other business really is that Jake Tapper, who's one of the American correspondents, described it as a hot mess in a dumpster inside a train rack wreck. And I was thinking if I was having this conversation with my mum uh, back home in, it's already come up today, Wolverhampton, what would be the West Midlands equivalent of that? And I thought it would be a chip pan fire in a wheelie bin on the tram to Brummagem. <laughs> Ever enough. Okay, uh, so that wraps things up, I think, for another week. Uh, thanks very much, Rob. Thank you, Arthur. Just a quick reminder, uh, the pod is available on the Pharmacy Magazine website and all your usual download sites. Just search for Talking Pharmacy. We'll be back next week. But for now, thanks very much for listening. <laughs>